Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, I I pray as we are gathered here today that we are not gathered according to a sense of duty or tradition or cultural practice, but that we have gathered with the sort of joy that we've been reminded of this morning, that we have gathered as true worshipers. It is so easy for us to take for granted just what it means to be able to take that claim to ourselves that we are worshipers of the living God. The human race is, is characterized by worship of one thing or another, but, but we are those who by your grace and by your power and your goodness and your provision in Jesus our Lord have been made to be true worshipers. Those who have been delivered from the pseudo-worship of man and his brokenness. To be worshipers as sons and daughters of the living God. And I pray that we have that joy of worship as we gather this morning. And that all of our joy and all of our peace, all of our sense of who we are, who we are in relation to you, to the lives that you have given to us, to our present and our future, all of that would be seen in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Paul could never get over or get past Jesus, I pray that it would be so with us. We can never be too Christ-centered. We can never be too Christ-preoccupied. We can never be too busy with growing to know him. He is the truth of who we are. He is the truth of our destiny. And I pray, Father, that this time as we continue our worship will testify truthfully of him and that the truth will be manifest in our own hearts and minds, that Christ will be honored and exalted as he is due, as the one in whom all things are yes and amen. So meet us in this time Cause it to be fruitful by the ministry of your good spirit. We give you this time, we commend it to you as we commend ourselves to you. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I know I've said it several times, but it's something that we need to keep being reminded of, and that's the fact that as we can kind of get in the weeds a little bit with, with a, a, a majestic epistle like Hebrews, we have to keep in mind that this was ultimately penned with a pastoral intent in mind. It wasn't written to be a, you know, a high and lofty systematic treatise of the doctrine of Christology, but it was written to encourage and strengthen and nurture real human beings, real Christians with real struggles, real difficulties, real suffering, real persecution, real loss. And the way that the writer saw best to provide that encouragement and that strengthening was by again putting in front of them uh, what Paul would call the glory of God in the face of Christ, what it is to know him, what it is to share in him. 
And I pray that, you know, we do find that encouragement that in the times in which we live, in the struggles that we have in our own homes, in our own lives, uh, issues that, that each of us are dealing with day by day, I pray that we find that uh, refuge and resource of comfort and joy in truly growing to know and depend and, and, and be conformed to, to Jesus our Lord. Well, we're in the middle of a section where the writer has been uh, dealing at length with the priesthood of Jesus, again, uh, treating that priesthood in terms of the Levitical priesthood that preceded it and that prepared for it that was a prophetic prefiguration of it. And as I've said again several times, ultimately to show the superiority of the covenant associated with uh, that priestly ministration. And the writer has drawn from Jeremiah 31 to, in a very concise way, uh, express how this covenant is superior to uh, the covenant under which Israel lived out its life with God. Uh, And he mentioned in that context of Jesus being the mediator of that new covenant, but now he returns to that particular topic to elaborate on it and show what this mediation is all about. But again, keeping the same uh, approach of correlation, contrast, comparison uh, between this mediation of Jesus associated with this new covenant and uh, the covenant that preceded it in the ministration associated with it. So I've titled this message, The Mediator of a New Covenant, with a more specific title being the blood of the covenant, because that's the focal point of this section that we're going to consider today, verses 15 through 22 of of chapter 9. So as the writer, and, and we'll read this in just a second, but again to kind of recap a little bit, as the writer's been laying these two uh, covenants and two ministrations side by side, Uh, His basic point has been that Israel's mediators, whether first Moses, the priesthood that followed after, whether Israel's rulers, the judges uh, constituted a kind of mediation, as did the kings later. Those mediators managed a covenant relationship between God and Israel that was defined by and ultimately Uh, determined by alienation. It was a relationship that the the mediators held together in a very uh, precarious and, and ultimately a symbolic way because the relationship was really marked by the estrangement of covenant father and covenant son, estrangement associated with violation, guilt, culpability, uncleanness, and that priestly ministration, as they, the mediation became ultimately focused in the priesthood, it was able to accomplish a kind of symbolic cleansing, what he calls a washing to the outer man. But ultimately, that cleansing or that, that remediation couldn't really deal with the fundamental problem. What was needed was human renewal. Not just a cleansing, not a a ritual atonement, but a renewal of the human being, a renewal of the covenant people, a new redemption. And again, to the Jews, this was very clear. They understood God had promised uh, with the Exodus, the Exodus became the great prototype of redemption and deliverance. And the prophets promised a day was coming when there would be another arising of God to liberate and to bring out his people from their bondage and to gather them to himself. What had been accomplished in the Exodus was ultimately uh, a prefiguration of God's ultimate design. What was needed was a redemption that would deliver the people not from bondage in a nation, bondage under uh, you know human oppressors, but deliver them from their self-enslavement, to become covenant sons and daughters indeed. And the writer's point is that Jesus is the one, when we talk about his mediation of a covenant, he is the one who has accomplished that work of deliverance and renewal. 
that was prefigured in the Exodus, that was, in a sense, pledged to Israel, that was uh, uh, represented symbolically through the priestly ministration. He uh, has accomplished that first and foremost in himself. By his resurrection, by his uh, ascension, by his enthronement, he has become in himself the truth of God's intent for his human creature. He is the glorified priest king who mediates God's relationship with his creation. And again, I'm, I'm kind of bringing in ideas that the writer's been developing to this point. And it's important because we have to keep the whole epistle in mind as we move forward. And he's building his argument. One layer, one layer, one layer at a time. So in Jesus, we see the realization of what man was created to be. In that sense, he becomes the covenant son. He is the embodiment of Israel. He is the embodiment of what man was intended to be. And therefore, his death has to be viewed in that way. That intent of God for the whole created order, and more narrowly for the human race, lies behind Jesus' self-sacrifice. He died to put man to death, but man as pseudo-man. If you think about even some of the scriptures that Nathan read this morning, they hearken to that. Certainly Paul in Romans is speaking to that premise and the idea of a new creation, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Jesus' death was to put to death pseudo-man, man in his falseness, in order that man, the creature, would become what he had become. Man would become all that Jesus is. And so whereas Israel's mediators had to manage or, or try to govern a relationship that was falsified and ultimately, ultimately made impossible by the reality of that alienation and, and estrangement, Jesus mediates a covenant relationship that is authentic and true. He mediates the relationship that the Sinai covenant and Israel's life with God spoke of, held out, but couldn't see realized. So that's the fundamental premise behind the writer's assertions concerning Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. That statement and that idea has to be understood in that way. It's the lens through which I want us to consider what it is that we're going to examine today. And the reason for that review is not only just because it's important to keep these things in our head, but because it is an important grid for this passage. This is a passage that there's been a lot of wrangling about because there are a lot of, of, of nuances and intricacies. And just by way of kind of, of setting a, a framework for thinking about this, the writer is approaching these issues in a more organic sort of way, a more Jewish way. The Jews do theology and have always done theology in a different way than we tend to do it. They don't approach things in a systematizing sort of way, but more by way of looking at ideas and comparing and correlating and, and extracting uh, relationships in a much more organic way. They don't sit down to write a confession or, or you know, a, a systematic statement of, of doctrine in relationship. And that's true to this day. And that's the approach that the writer is taking. So where people get bogged down is they try to say, well, wait a minute, this isn't exactly true. This isn't precisely true. This isn't the way. And, 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 and we end up kind of losing the glory of what he's trying to get at. And hopefully this will become clear as we move through it. So I'm going to begin reading with verse 11, even though we really need to go back um, to the beginning of chapter 9. But since I've done that the last few weeks... Just keep in mind that this is a continuation of, of again, treating of this idea of the, the, the new covenant and its mediation, but as understood through the lens of the former covenant, the former priesthood, the former mediation. 
So he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, but when Christ appeared, when the Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, which is to say not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place. The idea is the very presence of God once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, our consciences, from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the, and the goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. He's talking about what happened at the foot of Sinai in Exodus 24. And you can go and read that for yourself. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the covenant, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, as you can see, there's a whole lot of ideas woven into that. But fundamentally, again, the writer is talking about this new covenant in relation to the Messiah, but how that correlates with but transcends the former covenant administration, but particularly associated with this idea of blood, the blood of the covenant. So his foundational assertion then, I believe, is in verse 15, which is this. Jesus' mediation of a new covenant is grounded in the redemption and renewal that his death affected. But that death and that renewal and redemption ultimately has its goal in the human parties to the covenant obtaining the full inheritance of the sonship that is God's eternal purpose. And so that statement both looks backward and forward. It looks backward to the preparatory salvation history, the covenant and its ministration that went before, and ultimately to the full obtainment, the full realization of God's purposes through the death of Jesus. As I said last time, it's very easy for us to simplify. You know, if you ask even people have been Christians a long time, why did Jesus die? What was the point of his death? You'll often hear, well, to make atonement for sin. And that's not untrue, but that itself is a very deep well. And it, it means much more than simply, I've become guilty by breaking laws. Jesus died so that God will forgive me. It doesn't exclude those things, but it vastly transcends those things as well. And in fact, those things have to be understood within the larger concept of atonement in all of its dimensions. So I want to consider then this theme of, of again, Jesus as mediator of the covenant, but specifically in connection with this concept of the blood of the covenant. In, re- in two ways, in relation to the former covenant, and he's talking about the Sinai covenant, the covenant with Israel, and then secondly, uh, the new covenant that Jesus is a mediator of. And, and that second piece is really what he's going to be unfolding going forward in 23 and forward. So we're just going to kind of lay the foundation for that today. Most of this is going to actually concern the former covenant. And these ideas in that regard as the foundation. So there's three pieces to this. Uh, 
as it relates to the former covenant. There's this idea of blood or sacrificial death and inheritance, blood or sacrificial death and ratification with respect to the covenant and blood and continuation of the covenant. So you have three aspects that he's dealing with here. The blood as the means of ratifying a covenant, as the means of the continuation or uh, abiding, enduring quality of the covenant, and ultimately its execution. It's, 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 It's carrying out that for which it was instituted. This should actually, I think, go last, but in the text it goes first, so I'm going to deal with it first. But I think this is the part that, that is maybe the stickiest, and that's this idea of blood or, or sacrificial death in relation to inheritance. This is where the first sticking point comes. This is verses 16 and 17. Because everywhere the writer uses this, this Greek noun diatheke, covenant, he uses it throughout this whole uh, broader context, either in terms of the Sinai covenant, the former covenant, or the new covenant associated with Jesus. Here he uses the same term, covenant, diatheke, but with a different sort of emphasis, a different sort of emphasis. He's speaking of diatheke in a way that reminds us, if you look at verses 16 and 17, of what we call a last will and testament. Look again at what he says. Where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. What do you mean? A covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. He's describing a phenomenon associated with a will, right? A will only is enacted or activated with the death of the one who made it. That's why certain English versions, and I don't know what versions you have, but I think King James and New King James and maybe like the New American Bible or something, they actually will put the the word in here, testator, the death of the testator, as opposed to the death of the one who made it, which is what the NAS says. Capturing this idea of a will. Who is the testator? The testator is the one who generates the will concerning his own estate, right? That's where the problem comes in. And there's two uh, two way, general ways in which this has been interpreted, again, given the fact that up to this point and from this point forward, the writer continues to talk about covenant in the sense of either Israel's covenant with God or the new covenant that the Messiah is the mediator of. So the first way is to view this as the writer is still talking about the new covenant. If you note in verse 16, he introduces it with this inferential conjunction, a conjunction that, is, that, that brings out an inference. Four, he says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Then he explains in order to what, in order that what would happen, verse 16, for where a covenant is. And so some say, well, he's still talking about this new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of. Well, but then you come down to verse 18 and he says, therefore, even the first covenant, which covenant? The covenant with Israel, the former covenant. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. So he's dealing with a new covenant in verse 15, the former covenant in verse 18, and really 18 through 20. So where does this will idea fit in there? And if he's referring to a new covenant, then it raises the question of how that principle of covenant enactment or activation, the execution of a covenant, if you will, by the death 
of the one making the covenant, how does that apply to the covenant at Sinai? Because verse 18 says that he's thinking in that way in some sense. If he's referring to a last will and testament and not either Sinai or the new covenant, in other words, a kind of covenant, which a will is a covenant, right? It's a contract between the testator and the heirs. It's a contract between parties. It's a kind of covenant. But if he is talking generally about a last will and testament put in effect by the death of the testator, then the question there, at least one of the questions, is how does that relate to the Sinai covenant and the new covenant of which Jesus is mediator? So there's all, this is where, again, there's this kind of, well, wait a minute, how do we fit these pieces together? How does a will pertain to Sinai? How does a will pertain even to Jesus' mediation of a new covenant? And that's why I said it's important to treat this in an organic sort of way. We have to treat the section as a unit. You know, in, in our culture, we think in terms of, of two plus two equals four. You know, it would, every piece has to fit together in a perfect way and tie it up in a perfect knot. And so people get spun up here because they say, well, wait a minute, this isn't really entirely true. This isn't exactly perfectly accurate. But the writer is making points here in an organic way, and that's the way that I want us to think about it. So he has 9.15 with a general statement about Jesus mediating a new covenant. Then he provides an inference related to that in 16 and 17. And then he draws it back to the former covenant and its ratification in verses 18 through 21. And ultimately the way in which that covenant was preserved in verse 22. That's kind of the general flow. And you'll have to look at this yourself and think about it. But again, I believe he's treating this in a much more organic way than we tend to want to think. So that's enough for that in terms of the former covenant. This idea of death being tied to the, um, uh, the executing of a covenant associated with the death of a testator. The second thing that he deals with, as I said, in, in 18 through 21 is this idea of ratification. Ratification is the way a covenant is formally instituted. It, it becomes a binding document, if you will, or a binding arrangement. I guess it would be somewhat analogous to, um, uh, um, what's, I, I, my mind just went blank, but the, where, uh, where you get you know, a document stamped by a, a notary, get something notarized somewhat analogous to that. And his point is that death is also, and death, and that's what he means by this idea of blood, a sacrificial death is also associated with ratification of covenant. But there are two important distinctions between executing a covenant in the sense of, as he's spoken in 16 and 17, and the ratification of a covenant. In the case of the one, death establishes or formally institutes the covenant instrument. In the second instance, death is the mechanism of executing what the covenant is dealing with. Think again of a will. You write the will, you ratify it by getting it notarized, and then it sits there. It, it's not really activated in the sense that what it deals with is executed. That's why the person who is appointed and named to, to, when, to when the testator dies, the person who carries out the will is called the ex, ex, executor, right? He executes the will. So in the one case, uh, ratification deals with blood to establish or to formally ratify uh, the covenant. In the other, death is the mechanism for executing it. The other thing, too, in terms of what he's talking about here with the former covenant, 
Death, as it relates to ratification, involves the, sacri- uh, the, the, the ratifying blood is the sacrificial death of a non-party to the covenant. If you go back to Exodus 24, it wasn't one of the parties to the covenant that was put to death. It was an acceptable sacrifice, but it, was, it wasn't one of the parties to the covenant that provided the, the ratifying blood. But in the case of blood that executes a will, it is the blood of the testator himself, one of the parties. Again, the writer is bringing in all these different ideas that Israel would have understood and associated with this thing called covenant and the various ways in which they are structured and carry out their, their function. Ratifying covenants with blood was common in the ancient world. It's not just a biblical thing. But it preceded also Sinai. You see the ratifying of the covenant with Abraham with blood, right? The sacrificial animals and God symbolically in the flaming pot you know, moving between the, the, the halves of the animals. That's the way covenants were entered. And it gave the binding quality to it. The severing of animals and laying the halves apart and the covenanting parties passing between them. Sometimes applying the blood to themselves. And it basically said, I'm binding myself to this covenant relationship, whatever it f- sets out and, and entails, uh, at the, the penalty of death for violating it. And God entered into his covenant with Abraham in the context of, again, death and the shedding of blood. And that was true of Israel as well at Sinai. Well, in terms of this new covenant, because it represents covenant renewal, it represents the bringing into existence in a renewed and actual way of the Abrahamic relationship that Sinai spoke to and in theory at least established with the children of Israel, that same ratification by death is associated with this new covenant as well. Now remember, behind all of this is this concept, Jesus as mediator, of this new covenant. And all these pieces fit together. If we say, what does it mean that Jesus is mediator of a new covenant? Well, he's explaining to us what that means. So there's the idea of inheritance. There's the idea of ratification. As it pertains, though, to, again, there's there's continuity, discontinuity. As this ratification idea applies to Uh, what has come in the Messiah, there is a crucial difference. Remember, I said that in terms of the ratifying of the Sinai covenant, the sacrificial blood that ratified the covenant was a third party in the sense that it was not blood that was in any way related to the, the parties of the covenant. The covenant was between God and Israel. The difference, the distinction here, is that in ratifying of this new covenant, again, thinking in terms of Jesus as mediator, the sacrificial blood, the sacrificial death, involved one individual who embodies in himself both parties of the covenant. Not just one of them, both of them. That's why you see even in the servant songs in Isaiah, there are four of them in 42, 49, 50, and 52 to 53. In 42 and 49, in the first two servant songs, the Messiah is called the covenant. I make you the covenant of the people's. Because if, if covenant binds together God and his human, the, uh, the human parties to the covenant, 
in the Messiah, though the, the Isaiah wasn't clear exactly how this would work, you have in him the both sides of the covenant, God unto man and man unto God. He's both sides. And therefore, the ratifying blood was not from a third party and not from one of the covenanting parties, but from both of them. Now, the writer doesn't say all of this explicitly, but it's implicit, and his readers would have understood it, and it will become more clear again as we move on. So the last thing then, again, the blood, when he says blood of the covenant, it's blood and the inheritance or the execution of the covenant, blood and ratification, and then the last, the third thing is blood and continuation. The Israelite covenant was ratified with the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. That was a one-off. That's what Moses did at the foot of Sinai in Exodus 24. And at that point, Israel, the covenant son, was blameless. Moses sacrificed, he made the acceptable sacrifice, and he took the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkled the people. And here he says he sprinkled the book of the covenant. He wrote all the words of the covenant in a book. And he says then he even went when the tabernacle was built, which was later, and sprinkled all of that. Everything associated with the covenant was sprinkled with blood. And at that time, Israel says, all that the Lord requires of us, we will do. We will keep his covenant. And immediately, Moses and elders of Israel go up on the mountain, and the text says, they saw the Lord. And they were not destroyed. They saw the Lord. And they sat and ate a fellowship meal with him. And the point of that imagery is that at that point, Israel, represented in Moses and the elders, is faithful covenant son existing in a relationship of fellowship. Israel can be with God and fellowship with him. But we all know what happens right after that, right? They start making the golden calf and the whole thing is already falling apart. So the sprinkling of blood that was ratification, that was the formalizing of the covenant, continued on from that point forward as fundamental and essential to the preservation or the continuation of the covenant. Sprinkling of blood initiated it. Sprinkling of blood was necessary to continue it. The blood of ratification became the blood of continuation. And that's verse 22. According to the law, he means the Mosaic covenant, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. This is no longer ratification because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now we've moved into the realm of blood mediation associated with preservation or continuation of the covenant. So the last piece then from ratification is continuance. The covenant's continuance in Israel's life depended on cleansing blood that would bring forgiveness. Now, these are not new ideas to these readers. They understood all of this. He's drawing from these things to explain to them what has come in the Messiah and how all these things have found their fulfillment, but a, a really important, significant transformation as well. So in relation then to the new covenant, this idea of the blood of the covenant, in relation to the new covenant, which represents the renewal of the covenant relationship between God and his image bearers, that was pledged to Abraham and that was manifested corporately in Israel's life, what the writer is doing is he's bringing together all of these ideas, as I said, and showing how he's bringing them together and, and showing how they fit and how they find their, their culmination, their ultimate significance in relation to Jesus and the, the covenant fulfillment that has come in him grounded in his death, his sacrificial death.
I want to just treat this under two pieces, again, kind of the same three, but pulling them together a little bit. The first is how in Jesus we understand this idea now of covenant ratification and covenant guarantee. Jesus is the ratifier and the guarantor of the covenant. The former covenant and all of its particulars the writer is saying all of that was ratified with the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. That went on to become a part of the whole priestly ministration, the preservation of the covenant. Now with the new covenant, the blood of ratification and the blood of continuation are merged. Just as I said, the ratification is not the blood of a third party and it's not the blood of one of the parties, but the sacrificial death is actually represented, representing both parties to the covenant. As I said last time, if we want to take God, the Father, if you will, out of the picture in terms of Jesus' sacrificial death, we're doing complete injustice to the scriptural understanding and certainly to what the writer is saying here. I said last time, Jesus didn't carry his blood up into heaven to show it to God to say, okay, will you accept this or not? Mm, yeah, I guess I will. Jesus' sacrificial death was every bit the death of God himself in the person of the incarnate son. So in the case of this new ratification, not only do you have it, the, the blood of the, the, rat, the ratifying blood being representative of both parties to the covenant, but also now this principle of continuation through shed blood, mediation, the ongoing mediation of the covenant, those two things are merged into one offering. This is where the writer is going to go in 23. The blood of the ratification was a one-off. But then it became a perpetual thing to preserve the covenant in Israel's experience. He's saying that one off, all of these things are combined in the single offering of Jesus. All of these dimensions that he's drawing out here associated with covenant in Israel's covenant relationship with God, all of that is consolidated in the one off death of the Messiah. There would no longer be sacrifice and sprinkling to sustain the covenant. Ratification and continuation, medi continual mediation are merged into one offering. And then the last thing takes us back to the beginning, which is this idea of covenant as a will or testament. And we say, well, that wasn't really true of Sinai. God is the one who wrote the covenant, right? God was the testator in Israel's covenant. God didn't die. How, well, you know, that, that covenant didn't go into effect until God died. That doesn't make any sense. See, that's the way we look at it. We say, what is he talking about? That doesn't make sense. But he's treating this organically. He understands that that covenant relationship between God and Israel ultimately looked to and has found its fulfillment in this renewal, this covenant renewal associated with the Messiah. That's where we begin to see this principle of last will and testament come into play. But the correlation, again, is that the Sinai covenant did pertain, as did the Abrahamic covenant that it was grounded in, they pertained ultimately to what? Sonship. The covenant with Abraham was ultimately a pledge of sonship. And that became more explicitly clear as God ratified that relationship with the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants. Israel is my son. Israel is my son. That's the sense in which the Sinai covenant was concerned with inheritance. Because a covenant between father and son, in this instance, involves inheritance. Israel's faithfulness as God's covenant son would see them inheriting all of his blessings, 
all that he had promised to them. Isn't this really the focal point of Moses' treatment in Deuteronomy 30, and really 28 through 30? Deuteronomy is, Deuteronomos in Greek really means a second law or second giving of the law. But Deuteronomy isn't a second giving of the law, but now Moses is rehearsing to Israel the meaning of the law, the meaning of their covenant relationship in the light of their sonship. And what God has promised them, the inheritance, which is primarily centered in them dwelling with him in Canaan. Canaan becomes the inheritance, not because it's a piece of dirt, but because it's Yahweh's dwelling place. What God is pledging to them, what he is promising them, is that they will be son indeed. They will be with him. The the blessings that they're inheriting is ultimately Yahweh himself and the blessedness of dwelling in intimacy with the one who possesses all. That was how inheritance worked its way out in Israel's understanding. And that was what they were waiting for. Yes, they tasted that inheritance when they went into the promised land, but always at a distance, always in alienation, right? And very quickly, that alienation resulted in expulsion, exile, captivity, Israel did not obtain the inheritance of sons. Again, look back at verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in order that this mediation grounded in death for the sake of a redemption that couldn't be addressed under the former covenant, unto what end? That the elect sons, those whom God has taken to himself in covenant relationship, may receive the promise of the unending, undying, unalterable inheritance, the inheritance of sons. This is very much at the heart of the New Testament's treatment of what is this thing that has come in the death of Jesus, the inheritance of sons. Think again of Ephesians 1, inheritance of sons. Romans 8, the inheritance of sons. Hebrews 1 and 2, Jesus is the heir of all things, but that we become heirs in him. So Israel tasted this, but they really didn't. And their waywardness ultimately had God's in a sense stepping back and saying, I'm withdrawing the inheritance from you, exile, captivity, separation. And yet God upheld his last will and testament. The promise remained. The promise remained. The promise of the inheritance remained. That's what the writer's saying. It stood out there. It was always there. It was always there. It was always there. And Jesus' mediation now causes this to be brought into effect. God was determined that Abraham's offspring would fulfill their election as sons and in that way then obtain their inheritance. The premise of a will is that the heirs fulfill the terms of the will and in that way they inherit what the will gives to them as heirs, right? Often wills are changed because the heirs don't follow through with their obligation as defined by the will. God was determined, he held this thing intact, and he was determined that indeed this thing would be fulfilled, which meant that the covenant sons would indeed become those sons and so one day inherit the promise that the will set out, and in that way, ultimately fulfill God's purpose for his creation. It wasn't just about human beings, but the inheritance of the sons was unto his purpose for the whole creation. Well, in order for that to happen, given the circumstance, two things were required. Thinking again in terms of a will, this is why we don't really see this associated with the former covenant. It had to flesh itself out in the fulfillment of that is covenant renewal. The two things that had to happen, first, the father-son estrangement had to be rectified. Father and son had to be reconciled. 
Think again just in terms of a human will. If a father makes a will that, that grants an inheritance to his son, and then his son goes off and says, forget you, I want nothing to do with you, I hate you, whatever, uh, and they lose contact or there's, there's no real relationship there, uh, most fathers will change that will, right? In order for this to happen, father and son had to be reconciled. But also, and this is the writer's main point, what? The testator has to die. A will isn't executed until the testator dies. And so all along in this idea of will and testament being a part of this idea of covenant, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, the nature of the case meant that the testator would have to die. Who is the testator? Yahweh, the God of Israel. See, when we talk about Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus wasn't divine, these are the ways in which the scripture addresses those questions. It doesn't point us to a verse that says Jesus is God. But this is the way that we understand. In other words, I've said it so many times, the primary way that the New Testament shows the deity of Jesus is that he is Yahweh returned to renew the covenant, to restore all things. Yahweh returned as the testator of the covenant to die. For what end? That the inheritance would begin to be distributed to the sons. That's what the writer's talking about here. What does it mean that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant? It means all of this. It means all of this. Both of those requirements, reconciling a father and son and the death of the testator, both of those are yes and amen in the Messiah. So just to conclude then for today, I want to emphasize again that the writer is drawing on these various aspects and and features of covenant, but in in a very organic way, not in a systematized trying to connect the dots. I mean, people go back and they say, well, you know, in Exodus 24, Moses didn't really sprinkle the book and he didn't sprinkle the tabernacle. There's no record of that. There's a record of him anointing things with oil, but no sprinkling with blood. Well, these were a part of of Jewish traditional understanding. Josephus spoke in this sort of a way. But the writer is not concerned to connect dots in that sort of a way, but to get at the essential truths that are woven into these structures and the way that they work. And as I said before, this kind of organic correlating ways of contrasting and comparing ideas and themes and content. This is the way in which the Jews have always done theology. They, they look at ideas in relation to each other. They don't form confessions. And so Jesus' death has to be understood when we say, what does it mean that he's mediator of a new covenant? That has to be understood in terms of his death, but his death has to be understood in terms of ratification. The covenant is actually formalized, notarized through his death. But we also have to think of it in terms of the executing of the covenant. That which the covenant holds forth actually passes through and and is actualized in relation to his death. It is the death of the testator. So as a man, his death represented an acceptable sprinkling of blood to establish in truth the covenant relationship between father and image son. Jesus is true man unto God. He owned the truth and the judgment levied against pseudo-man And he also owned the truth of God's design for man, realized in his own resurrection and ascension. He was in every sense man unto God for the sake of the human race. But as the embodiment of the covenant-making God, 
as the testator, if you will, Jesus' death was precisely that. Jesus' death as the embodiment of the covenant-making God enables the inheritance to now begin to be dispensed to the heirs. And isn't this how Paul speaks? Look again at Romans 8. I won't read it, but go back and read Romans 8. He talks about Jesus doing what the law couldn't do. And he grounds it in incarnation. God did what the law couldn't do. Weakened by the sin nature, God did. How did he do it? In incarnation. Jesus taking on sinful flesh, put sin to death in his flesh. In order that the righteousness, the truth, the reality that God intended all along would be fully realized in us who walk according to the Spirit. Those who are in the Son are sons. And if sons Heirs, heirs with Christ, joint heirs of all that he is heir to. Kings and priests to our God. What is Jesus' inheritance? All authority in heaven and earth is mine. He's enthroned as king priest above all rule and authority, power and dominion. That's our destiny. That's not our deification in some sort of a you know, heretical way. But already we've been raised up, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is our destiny? What is the point of the blood of Christ? Revelation 5. Kingdoms, a kingdom and priest to our God, right? He has purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. The distribution of the inheritance. This inheritance was held in promise from the point of the garden. It was held by God, and he wouldn't let it go. And he pledged it to Abraham, and he he developed what it would look like in his covenant with Abraham and then in his covenant with Israel. And failure and failure and failure, and yet God said, I will hold this. I will fulfill this covenant, you will become sons and you will obtain the inheritance. And bound up in that is I, the testator, will die. Unique, though, in this, in this whole covenant arrangement, though, is the fact that Jesus is both testator and heir. Have you thought about that? Has there ever been a last will and testament in which the testator is also the heir? It's impossible. The testator dies. The heir gets gets the estate, right? You can't be both testator and heir. You can be one or the other or neither, but you can't be both. Because if you die as testator, what do you get? Nothing. You're dead. Another point of uniqueness. See, the writer's taking these ideas and he's bringing them together in a way that says not only does it all converge here, but it uniquely converges here. I mean, look at all the points of uniqueness that I've brought forth so far in which you can say, yeah, it's the same thing, but it's different. Yeah, it's the same. It's greater. It's unique. It's singular. And this is another one of those points. Jesus is both testator and heir. The one who died is the one who lives, who has inherited all things. What does the writer say at the beginning of Hebrews 1? This Jesus who died the sacrificial death is the heir of all things. He has inherited all things. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. And the writer again has this in his mind as he says he will sit down at the right, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who died is the one who also lives to inherit all things. You see that imagery in Revelation 1, right? I am he who died, but I am alive and I live forevermore. He is also, though, the singular heir 
but as the first among many heirs. He's both testator and heir. He's the heir of all things. It all comes to him, but not just for him, but ultimately as the firstborn among many brethren. We go back to Hebrews 2 again. Jesus is the heir as the true man. But in order that the human race would share in that inheritance. We are heirs of all that he is heir to. This is what you see in, again, chapter 2. It's what you see in Romans 8. It's what you see in Galatians 3 into chapter 4. Jesus comes as the heir and we become sons in him. So again, what God had held in trust from the very beginning, from the promise in Eden, the promise of an eternal inheritance for his image children is now going out to the image children. And not just because of the death of the image son, but in him. Not just because of him, but in him. As I've said so many times, it's not Jesus was raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead. Our resurrection is sharing in his resurrection. Our inheritance is sharing fully in his inheritance. It's not he gets 30% or 95% and then we split 5% amongst however many millions of us there are. It's not that. We are heirs of all that he is heir to. In him. That's the key. That's Ephesians 1. We are heirs of all that he is heir to because we are sharers in him. Our life is his life. That's why his inheritance is our inheritance. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but this, I'd like for you to do this this week. I mentioned the four servant songs of Isaiah 42, the beginning of 42, the beginning of 49, Chapter 50, about verses 4 through 9. And then 52, the end of 52 through 53. We're all familiar with Isaiah 53. Those are the four servant songs. And if you don't remember those, you can just Google it or whatever. But they deal with this promised servant who is to come. And out of that, as kind of a kind of climax, comes 59 and 60. And I want you to go back and read 59 and 60 in the light of what we've talked about today. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll just put a, put a couple verses from the end. And you can see how this was promised all along and how it would come to pass. This is God recognizing that the, he looks over the world and he says, there's no one, there's nothing, there's no hope. And people themselves realize there's no hope. There's no hope. And it says, but the Lord will arise. He will come. He will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives. Yahweh will come like the wind of Yahweh that Yahweh drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them says Yahweh, the Lord, my spirit, which is upon you, who this redeemer that comes and my words, which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. The Lord is going to return and restore Zion, his covenant bride, to bear children for him. And that's where now in chapter 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. Who's your Zion? The your of verse 21 is the Redeemer who comes. Here the your in chapter 60 at the beginning is Zion. Arise, Zion, and shine, for your light has come. The glory of Yahweh is risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you. His glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around about and see. Behold, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in your arms. 
And then you will see, you Zion will see and you will be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. This was God's promise of an inheritance bound up in a redeemer. This is what the writer is drawing on. And saints, again, I hope these things rise in our hearts. I don't want this to be an exercise in mastering doctrine. I want this to be the glory of God in the face of Christ so that we can actually understand what we're part of, what God has accomplished, and that we would be transformed by it. Father, we can never, we can never get enough of this glorious work We can never get enough of this glorious purpose. We can never get enough of our glorious God. And I pray that you would help us to see all the more and all the more clearly that all that you are, all that you are towards us, all that you are towards your creation, all that we are created to be, all of the purpose for this world and for the people in it, for your creation itself, All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge, all purpose, whether from the side of the creator or from the side of the creation, all of that has its yes and amen, its truth, its true meaning, its true significance in Jesus our Lord. I pray that we would never get over him. I pray that our our sense of being Christians is not merely, oh yes, here was a sinless guy that died for me and I'm so glad and now I get to go to heaven. I pray that we would not impoverish him and impoverish this mighty work and impoverish our own faith and our own testimony in that way. May we truly, as Paul said, labor in all things to see everyone presented complete in him and that we would labor together to grow up in him unto the fullness of the stature that belongs to him. In that way, we will know joy. In that way, we will know steadfastness. In that way, we will know peace. In that way, we will bear the fragrance of the true and living gospel in this world. In that way, we will be faithful with one another. Father, cause us by your spirit to make much of Jesus our Lord. And may we never tire of him and growing up in him, knowing him, hearing him, being conformed to him. All praise and honor and power and glory and dominion to our God and to the Lamb. Meet us in our need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.